According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. This is our second class in episode 11, The Poor Widow's Great Offering. The Poor Widow's Great Offering. This is Wednesday of the Crucifixion Week. This is his final uh, episode as he's departing from the temple. He's delivered his final public message in the temple. He takes a seat while he's waiting for his disciples to return and they're getting ready to leave. They will leave Jerusalem, go up to the Mount of Olives where he'll spend the night. He's been spending the night there every night this week. Uh, this is the night, Wednesday night, in which he will give them out all of it discourse. The uh, tremendous doctrinal material is found in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. And then uh, he will not return to Jerusalem until uh, he uh, returns on Thursday, the next day, and uh, in the afternoon, and uh, with instructions for his disciples to go and uh, have the upper room prepared. So, uh, this is how close we're getting to uh, to the cross. Uh, but for this morning, the poor widow's great offering, Luke, uh, Matthew 12, 41 through 44, and Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that distractions are set aside, that tempers are settled, that we're in fellowship, that we're hungry for truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that we have to come together, to open the truth, and Father, to be fed, to be blessed as Your Word goes forth. Father, we ask for the humility. Your Word declares that it's with humility that we are to receive the Word implanted which is able to save the soul. So Father, I thank You for the privilege that it is. look forward to seeing how uh, You make use of the Word that You send us. We've been observing, Father, here in these recent weeks and months that your timing is just absolutely miraculous, that you are equipping us with exactly the truth we need at exactly the right moment, and we thank you for that. So, Father, we, uh, we do thank you for this widow. We don't know her name, but she continues to bear fruit. Uh, her two little coins, Father, has borne tremendous fruit over the last 2,000 years. We thank you for that, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Context for this, as we said, this is shortly before leaving. In fact, he's given his final message and then he takes a seat. Shortly before departing the temple for the last time, Jesus sat down and observed the treasury deposits. And we see this here in Mark 12. Um, The development prior to this in the verses before verse 41 is pretty short. Verses 38 through 40 Uh, in Mark's record is pretty short, but we have the longer version of this in Matthew 23 and the episodes that we are the uh, classes that we had leading up to this where he pronounced woe upon the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. 23, uh, uh, Matthew 23, there has seven different woes. And uh, you can imagine that a message like that was pretty draining. You can imagine that uh, when he was done with that, uh, that he was ready to leave immediately. Um, But we don't know exactly where the disciples are, so he takes a seat. And it says in verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now, wherever they were, uh, the disciples don't come into the picture until verse 43, were calling his disciples to himself. 
And so we don't have the whole story on this, but evidently when he was seated, the disciples are nowhere around. And then he observes the rich people and he observes the widow. And then uh, evidently he sees the disciples and he says, come over here, come over here. And uh, he calls his disciples to himself so that they can watch what it is that he's been watching in the process of, uh, of sitting there in the temple. So shortly before departing the temple for the last time, Jesus sat down and observed the treasury deposits. Some of the vocabulary on this and really the verb tenses on this that bring this to a more um, between your, your present tenses, your imperfect tenses, your aorist tenses and, uh, and the things there. And the fact that he's not just watching, he's not just seeing it, he's thinking about what he's watching. He's observing the display. It's not just blepo to, to see it. But it's theoreo, where we get theory, where we get theater. He's, he's observing, he's seeing and he's learning, making a thoughtful and reasoned observation. And the little adverb posts, if you're with us last week, we discussed this a little bit. He was not just observing that they were putting money in the treasury. He was observing how they were putting money in the treasury. And uh, as we might understand the the nature of the um, the ostentatious nature of, of those that were making grand displays. They were trumpeting uh, their, uh, their giving opportunities and so forth. So the attitude of the activity. Took you to Edersheim last week. We read from page 48 in his, uh, the Jewish temple in the time of Christ, talking about the 13 trumpet-shaped collection receptacles that were in the outer court, in the women's court. All right, many rich people were throwing in much, but one poor widow came and threw in just two lepta. And this is where we uh, left it with point three and point four. We'll go back over that. Now, the key is to understand that the Father has given him understanding, that the Father has given him a message to deliver, that in watching this, he sees things that cannot be simply observed through human observation. Um. The poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Well, how did he see that? From whatever distance away he was, how did he see that it was one coin or two coins? Or how did he know it was not more than two? How did he know it was exactly two? And how did he know that they were lepta? How did he know what the denomination of the coin actually was? See, if, uh, if Doug was to walk over there and drop something in the box, I wouldn't know what it was. I would just see there he is dropping something in the box. I wouldn't know if it was one coin, two coins, what kind of coins. But he knows exactly, and more than that, he knows that it's all that she has to live on. He knows that it's her final two lepta. He knows that it's the last coins that she even owns. He knows about her deficiency. Now, how does he know all that? Okay, We discussed this on a number of occasions. Most commentators say that, well, this was omniscience at work. No, uh, Jesus never uses omniscience in his earthly ministry. This is uh, the fact that he's a prophet, though, and, and that as a prophet that he receives from the Holy Spirit or from the Father, he receives briefings. He receives uh, what we would call today a, a heads up, as it were. Uh, the, the prophetic utterance comes upon him and he's given insight into things. Really no different than... Um, would happen to any of the Old Testament prophets, you know, about this time tomorrow, a man will come here looking for his father's donkeys, okay, and uh, and you will take him and you will anoint him king over Israel, right? So did Samuel have omniscience to know that Saul was showing up the next morning? No, it was the, the prophetic gift, the prophetic office, God the Father giving him his, his uh, updates or his uh, heads up. 
And then the next day, when King Saul did come, then he gets the refresher email, as it were, uh, when the Lord, uh, the Spirit of the Lord would say, uh, this is the one of whom I said to you yesterday, you know, just in case, just double checking. <laughs> Don't miss this one. He's the one looking for the donkeys. So um, you can imagine something similar happening here. He observes the widow and, uh, and the Spirit of God comes upon him and gives him the full story, the insight, not only to her, but also to them. He talks about them that they uh, all put in out of their surplus, out of their excess, out of their abundance. And so he's given prophetic insight into their attitude as well as, uh, as her attitude on this. So Jesus perceives comprehensive information regarding this widow that turns these observations into a significant message. And the moment he receives this insight, what's he supposed to do with it? What, was, what would an Old Testament prophet do when he received a vision, when he received a message? He would have to therefore stand and say, you know, thus saith the Lord, or, or say something of that nature. And he does that here. He says, truly, I say to you. This is the Lord's, uh, you know, uh, all the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, well, not Daniel, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah, these guys, what was their, their phrase would be, thus saith the Lord? Well, does the Lord say, thus saith me? he says, yes, he does, because he says, truly, truly, I say to you. That's his personal first-person version of thus saith the Lord, okay? And we have that here. Truly, I say to you. So this, this started off as just simply Jesus having a seat waiting for his disciples to show up wherever they had gone, all right? And uh, whatever, the, you know, I don't think they were, you know, out on the front back porch smoking. I think they were probably had official business. They had things to do. They had... Uh, ministry uh, requirements. Maybe they were purchasing food for the evening meal. Maybe they were uh, doing other things. But whatever the case, uh, he, he's waiting for them so they can depart together and, and return back to the Mount of Olives for the night. And uh, and isn't this awesome? Uh, you know, he thought he was done for the day. You know, he thought he had delivered his final sermon here in the temple, and now he's just kind of you know resting, waiting to go get some dinner. And then the Spirit of God comes upon him again. There's one more message to deliver. He's got to give these words here too. So I find that interesting. Now, he called his disciples to himself for a divine message. Again, this amen, lego, humin. And sometimes the amen is doubled. Sometimes it's amen, amen, lego, uh, humin, or lego, soy. Depending on whether it's singular or plural. I say to you or I say to all y'all. Uh, but here he says, truly, amen, I say to you. So this is an official Bible class. This is official, you know, this is, you've got to quit talking. You've got to quit joking. This is, this is like, uh, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's, a, it's an attention getter. It's a call to worship. It's a, it's a phrase that lets his disciples know, wait a minute, this is the authority of the word of God. We better immediately pay heed. So truly, truly, I say to you, he has a, uh, a divine message to deliver. And here's his declaration. This poor widow has given more than all the others. This poor widow has given more than all the others. They, that's what they had to understand. And I think that um, answers truly the conundrum. Remember I mentioned last week, there's really two ways that the commentaries approach this passage. One approaches it positively, similar to how we're teaching it, that this is a positive example. This woman is glorifying God. She's operating in the will of God. She's doing this properly. Uh, but there is a commentary tradition out there, and several of them, probably a good, maybe not quite half of the commentaries out there, view this as a negative example. 
They're horrified at what this woman's doing. They think it's bad that she's giving her last two coins. And they teach it as, a, as an example of how uh, what you see a few verses, uh, just uh, one verse prior there in verse 20, that uh, this, she's just being victimized by these religious leaders, that they devour widows' houses. Okay? And so because verse 40 there in this context mentions the religious leaders as devouring widows' houses, they then look at this story as being an illustration of that, as being a negative example of that. And, and um, while I understand how uh, verse 40 in that context can be controlling for the, the passage we're looking at, in this case, I don't think you can take it that way. Because what Jesus is doing, look at his statement. He says what and he says why. The what, he says, is that her contribution is greater. And then the why, he explains why it's greater. He doesn't tell the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, this is what I was talking about, this widow, her house is being devoured. He says, truly, I say to you, she is outgiving them. She is outgiving them. And then he explains why. For they are making contributions based on surplus, excess giving. What we're going to call, um, oh, what did I call this? I got a term for this. Surplus giving. Okay? And she is giving deficiency giving. And Jesus says this is the greater contribution. And the disciples have to understand that. Uh, primarily because what's about to happen is they're going to be the, the founding apostles of the coming church age. They're going to be operating within a dispensation in which grace giving is the order of the day. Not tithing, but grace giving. So what is greater grace giving? What is inferior grace giving? And here's the opportunity for him to illustrate that. All right. Jesus explained the standard by which two leptons is more than all the money the rich people were giving. You could view this as cumulatively when it says um, she has put in more than all the contributors in the treasury. You can read that as each. You can read that as all. Um, you know, any one of them individually or all of them collectively. I think it's better to take it as all of them collectively. All these rich people, however many he saw come in and all the coins he saw going in and everything else. And he says, you put all that together and this widow has given more. Her two mites have given more. And um, this is his explanation. So I don't view this as critical. I don't view this as a, a lament over a widow's house being devoured. I, I view this as the positive example being taught on the basis of grace giving now one description or three descriptions to me that's significant one description or three descriptions if you're just counting phrases that are attached to this uh, the rich people give and there's only a single description given to the rich people in their offering just one description and it says right there they all put in out of their surplus that's the only thing we know about these people and how they're giving. That's the only criteria that Jesus was provided insight for related to these rich people and what they were giving. They were giving out of their surplus. They were giving out of their excess, out of their abundance. All right? Now, is there anything wrong with giving out of your abundance? I'm going to expand upon this later. But we, because we've been connecting this with First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 8 so much, is there anything wrong with giving out of abundance? If God has blessed you with an abundance... Should you not be giving? Say, well, clearly, if God has provided you in abundance, then yes, he has designed you for grace giving and you have uh, opportunities, open doors before you and so forth. 
And that's the basis upon which they're giving. They're giving in the realm of abundance. But she, there are three descriptions here. She, out of her poverty, there's the first description, or her deficiency, uh, put in all that she owned. There's the second description right there. We'll talk about the totality of her giving. And then thirdly, all she had to live on, her livelihood. The third description, her livelihood. All right. So there's three descriptions of her giving, one description of their giving. And that's a proportion. That's a ratio there. Three to one. And um, not the only place where we find that. I find, um, oh, lots of other places. My favorite is in 2 Timothy 2. If you're familiar with this one. 2 Timothy 2.22. That's a lot of twos, isn't it? There's the two in 2 Timothy, and then there's chapter 2, and then there's verse 22. So, my mind is kind of quirky. I, I remember things based on how I can remember things. And 2222 is a road out of town that heads west. So um, It says, flee from youthful lusts. Notice that? That's one item. But then look what you're supposed to pursue. Four items. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Do you think that's significant? One item on the flee side of the ledger and four items on the pursue side of the ledger and on the pursue side of the ledger not only are you pursuing four items but you get help in doing that because it says with those who call on the lord from a pure heart that you can have fellowship in this pursuit the right kind of fellowship the right kind of peer pressure the right kind of spiritual brothers and sisters that are supporting your walk all right and so as parents, obviously, if you're training your children to pursue those four items, you're less worried about them fleeing the one item, aren't you? <laughs> right? They don't have as much time to, because they're, they're spending all their time pursuing those four items. And they're doing so with friends. They're doing so with Christian influences, with positive examples. And so, again, as a matter of, of, uh, of, a, of a perspective, as a ratio there, it's four to one. Well, coming back to where we are now in Mark Twelve, it's three to one. Three descriptions of this widow's giving and one description of the rich people and their giving. They're just giving out of their surplus. They're giving out of their surplus. And that's all that, that can be said related to that. But there's three things that can be said related to her giving. So, the threefold description of deficiency, totality, and livelihood. Deficiency, totality, and livelihood. We're going to expand upon these here in just a moment. Uh, deficiency is, this, is vocabulary-wise, you already have it because that's what we're looking at in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, that the Corinthian abundance was designed for the Judean deficiency. All right, so these are the same terms. And uh, it's neat the way the Lord's coordinating these things as we, uh, as we go through it. Now, thirdly, I think this gets mistaught a lot when it teaches that the rich people's offering is worthless. Nothing in this text describes it as worthless. It is, though, however, described as being inferior to the widow's offering. Nothing in this text describes the rich people's offering as worthless. It's it preached that way a lot, but this text doesn't say that it's worthless. It just says that, it's, that, that her offering is greater. The truth is, is that these offerings in these 13 trumpet-shaped containers, these offerings are free will offerings. All right? At least part of them. Um, we, we broke down what the 13 of them were in terms of the sin offerings and the, 
Edersheim listed that. But at least the last four or the last six of the 13 uh, trumpet-shaped containers were free will offerings, votive offerings, above and beyond offerings, the want-to offerings of the Old Testament. Okay? Not every offering in the Old Testament was a have-to. Not every offering was a, was a tithe or under the law. There were tremendous want-tos as well in the Old Testament, so much so that they actually received so many free will offerings, Moses had to tell them, stop, we got enough, we can build the tabernacle now. And Solomon, same thing, stop, we got plenty, we can build this temple now, you understand. David pre-funded most of that temple anyway, just because he loved the Lord and wanted to, wanted to uh, Lord wouldn't let him build it. And uh, David said, okay, I can't build it, but I can, uh, I can pre-fund it. <laughs> I can purchase a lot of the materials, I can uh, make friends with the, the king of Tyre. And uh, things of that nature. So these are free will offerings. And the fact that they're giving when they don't have to give. All right. And maybe some of them are giving on a pride basis. But they're giving. And this passage is not describing it as worthless. If you, uh, if you say, if you, if you try to, if you adopt that thinking, then you're reading into the text something the text does not say. The text does say, though, that it is inferior to the widow's offering. We want to be clear on that. So, in a surplus model, you can give out of your surplus. And doing so is not necessarily worthless. But surplus giving will be inferior to these other modes of giving that we see here. The deficiency giving, the totality giving, and the livelihood giving. Which I'll expand in a moment. Finally then, um, point D, the last point under four. The widow in this episode must have reminded Jesus of the widow at Zarephath. The widow in this episode must have reminded Jesus of the widow at Zarephath. She also was a subject of his preaching. He had referenced her in Luke chapter 4. In fact, uh, he, um, he referenced her in a way that made his audience rather angry. They were ready to drive him off a cliff. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a powerful illustration. And he used it. He used it effectively. The story of the widow of Zarephath is uh, contained in 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16. And uh, the Lord's use of that episode is, uh, can be found in Luke 4 and verse 26. All right. Let me grab Luke real quickly and then we'll go back to 1 Kings. Luke 4. He, uh, he points out, I say to you, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. There were many widows. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Sidon is, is on the coast there. It's like... Tyre and one of the, the Phoenician cities. So there were many widows, and yet who was Elijah sent to? Of all the widows in Israel, of all the widows in Galilee, of all the widows, Jewish widows, he sent to a widow in Zarephath. And likewise, there were many lepers in, in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they caught up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. All right. Yeah, I've, I've angered people in messages before, but they've never tried to throw me off a cliff. At least not yet. 
I may still come. I don't tempt the Lord to say that will never happen here. But All right, so there's the episode. The Lord's familiar with it. He, 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 he knows it well. He uses it. He uses it even in a, in a context where it's going to lead to hostility. So I think it's undoubtable that, that it must have been on his mind here as he's watching this widow and seeing her livelihood, all she has to live on. That's the widow of Zarephath, which we'll see here in a moment. All right, let's turn there now. First Kings 17. First Kings 17. The totality giving. When you give literally all that you own, your livelihood. First Kings 17. All right, Elijah predicts the drought in the early part of the chapter, and then it comes, and then things are getting really bad. You know, without reading the uh, all of these verses, this is where the ravens are going to feed him, and he gets to uh, be hidden at the brook, and so he's got fresh water to drink, and he's got the ravens that bring the uh, the food to him. All right. Then the brook dries up. Now what's he going to do? The word of the Lord comes to him in verse 8, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. And behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So there's a work assignment. All right? I have commanded. There's a work assignment. And uh, Elijah is the, the one that is to be provided for. That's his assignment. And the widow's assignment is to be the one providing. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Now, you, you wonder what form did the command take when the Lord commanded this woman? Did he come upon her in a dream? Did he give her a briefing? Did he say, you know, about this time tomorrow, a, a, a scraggly guy that, you know, wrapped in camel's hair and, <laughs> you know, uh, he's going to show up. He's going to ask for uh, he's going to ask for a drink in a jar. We don't know. But this is this is how it plays out. And uh, she was going to, as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As Yahweh, your Elohim, lives. So whatever else you want to say about this widow, she knows Yahweh. And she knows that Yahweh is the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's not, Yahweh is not her Elohim, although I believe she's a believer, I believe she's saved. Yahweh is her redeemer. Yahweh is her savior. But he is the God of Israel. He's not the God of the Phoenicians. She is a Gentile and she knows it. But as Yahweh your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, this is our last meal. All that she had to live on. Right. And remember the uh, uh, the exchange rate for the two lepta we talked about yesterday, the purchasing power, or not yesterday, last Wednesday, two lepta could purchase a handful of fine flour. And what does she have? A handful of, of flour and a little oil in the jar. Now, I would suspect as far as whatever she was briefed on yesterday or previously, she was commanded to provide for Elijah. And so whatever form that took, and it probably was just simply a basic, when you meet this man tomorrow, when he asks you for water in a jar, you'll know that it's him, uh, provide for him. 
provide for him. Just as simple as that. Nothing specific. Just provide for him. And then we see here, what's he asking? So, uh, he says, uh, bring me a piece of bread. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. Behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. That's her explanation. She doesn't have any bread. And uh, they're about to eat their last meal. There won't be food tomorrow. There won't be food the next day. There won't be food the next day. However long it takes to, to starve to death or to uh, die of thirst, you need more wa- water more than food. But there it is. So Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said. In other words, take these sticks, build your fire, turn the flour into bread, bake your bread, but make me a little bread cake from it first. The first loaf that comes out is mine. (laughs) Right? But she only has the one handful. How many loaves are coming out? That's right. Okay. Do as you have said, but bake me, make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Now you realize this is, I I believe this is the female equivalent of Abraham offering Isaac. Okay. Because if she does this first, she's offering up her only begotten son. She's laying down her own life. She's in, in earthly terms, there's no more to bake. There's no more oil. There's no more flour. There's no more bread. There won't be a second loaf. All right. But this is like Isaac and Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And he tells the servants, we're going to go up. And when we come back, okay, and this is and this is the faith of Abraham, knowing that he's going to sacrifice his son, but they're coming back. We will come back. And so here she is. The first one goes to Elijah. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. There's the promise. Abraham likewise had a promise that his son, uh, you know, that in you, all the, in your descendants, all the, the people of the earth will be blessed. So he has a promise. Now, the promise may not seem to make sense given the command. Let me rephrase that. The command may not make a lot of sense given the promise, right? Kill your son makes no sense when the promise is that your descendants, you know, the, the promise of the seed. Well, likewise, um, bake me the first loaf may not make any sense. But there's a promise. And the promise is that this flour and this oil will not be exhausted. So the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty. But all she has is just a handful of flour in the bowl. The bowl itself isn't even full. There's just a handful left in the bowl. And a little oil in the jar. It's not even a jar full of oil. A little in the bowl and a little in the jar. But the promise is the bowl shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar be empty. Until this uh, three-year without rain situation is over. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. All right. Now, this is her faith in action. She has a promise. She obeys the promise. She's trusting in the Lord. She knows who Yahweh is. She knows that Yahweh is is his Elohim, the God of, of Israel. She's been commanded to provide for Elijah, the prophet of, of Yahweh Elohim. And she's going to be obedient to the promise. Now, as far as this goes, I, I, I can imagine 
<laughs> she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And then, of course, it goes on to say, and she and he and he, because he's going to live there with her. She and he and her household ate for many days and the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So however that miracle worked, however that miracle worked, I'm, I'm, I'm going to imagine she, she takes the last handful out, puts it in the fire. She pours the last oil out, you know, mixes it, bakes it. And so the, at that precise split second after she pours them out, they're empty. Did they immediately then refill? Was it multiplied at that point? Or was it only multiplied after she presents the bread to the prophet and then the bowl refill? We don't know. It's not that specific. But I uh, kind of hope to see this on DVD someday just to see the look on her face when you empty out the flour and you put it back on the shelf and it's full again. Wow. Okay. Saves you trips to H-E-B when, uh, you know, you just put the container back on the shelf and it's full again. Can you imagine that? So we got this widow of Zarephath. But understand what her faith was at this moment. Baking the last loaf and giving the first one to the prophet. The second one's for you and your son. And that's all that she has to live on. That's totality giving. That seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now what might the alternative be? The alternative might be no. Um, I'm going to eat the first one. And if this miracle takes place like you're telling me, then you can have the second one. How's that? <laughs> you think this miracle is going to happen? All right, then you get the second loaf. But I'm going to eat the first loaf. Okay. That would not be, yeah, that would not be faith in the, in the promise. But see, understand, if you have one meal left, no more money in the bank, no more money in your pocket, one meal left is all you've got. Truly, then, what difference does that one meal make? You know? It just delays by, what, eight hours, the, the point of your starvation? If you forsake that last meal, then, then, then the food you have to live on is the, the previous meal, the last meal that you ate prior to this. All right? And so if, if truly all you have is just one loaf left, how long is that going to sustain you anyway? So what do you gain? What do you gain by disobeying God and eating that last loaf? What do you really gain? Nothing, truly, because you lose everything. <laughs> if you obey God, claim the promises, walk by faith, obey the Lord, well, you see that uh, they, they ate throughout the remainder of the famine. Okay, there's, uh, there's other things here. Um, in fact, this same widow and the same son, he's going to die. And uh, there's uh, another episode after that here in 1 Kings 17, but I don't want to go into all that this morning. Let's get back to Mark now. Let's talk about some of these principles. Point five. Here's the significance. Surplus giving is inferior to deficiency, totality, livelihood giving. Surplus giving is inferior to deficiency, totality, livelihood giving. The Lord described their giving as surplus. He described her giving as deficiency, totality, and livelihood giving. And she says that, and the Lord says that that hers is greater. Hers is greater. So what do we 
talk about with respect to these items here. Deficiency giving. Deficiency giving. Am I commanded to give in my deficiency? There's a question for you. Okay? No. First of all, understand that. Deficiency giving is never commanded. Deficiency giving is... I can't point to a verse because there isn't one. Deficiency giving is never commanded. It's not a have to. It's a want to. And in this widow's case, she did it and the Lord commended her for it. Deficiency giving is never commanded, but in this passage it is commended. And as we teach grace giving, as we teach it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we teach it in other passages, 1 Corinthians 16 and other places, if you don't have it, you're not held accountable, you're not expected to give what you don't have. And then when you identify the opportunities, remember the kairos, opportune times, and you, and you identify the open doors, and as Paul taught, there is a secret to having an abundance and there's a secret to suffering need. And so we may be in those different categories from time to time. And if we are in the need category, if we are in the deficiency category, we are not commanded to give. But are we prohibited from giving? Are we prohibited from giving under those circumstances? There's no passage that commands us to give under a deficiency circumstance, and there's no passage that prohibits us from giving under a deficiency circumstance. And this passage actually commends the woman who gives under a deficiency circumstance. And so we have something to, to chew on and to consider. And in, in, in a lot of ways, we are the worst people on planet Earth to, to study this right now. Because we are the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. And in our standard of living, what we view as deficiency is typically normal in other parts of the world. All right? I'm not to the point where uh, I might be tightening my belt. I might be cutting back on some uh, extras. But I've not reached the point yet where I'm dropped to two meals a day or one meal a day. I'm still hitting 21 a week, plus snacks, okay? Uh, but if, uh, if, in fact, there is an actual deficiency, can I still give under that deficiency? I can. She, she did. That's the illustration that we have right here. And so the believer then has an opportunity to evaluate exactly what is the deficiency, to learn the secret, as Paul says it's a secret, of contented, uh, being content, okay, and how to not allow the, the temporal life deficiency to be an excuse to forsake spiritual life root bearing. All right? Because... Uh, the truth may be that the deficiency would be a deficiency anyway. <laughs> so as you give, you, you're still bearing fruit. All right. And if you, if you withheld that giving, you know, if she did not give these two lepta, would she, would she be any less deficient? You know, would she be any less in need? She'd still be poor. She'd still be destitute, even with two lepta. All she could purchase would be a handful of flour 
She'd be delaying her starvation by hours. Okay. So is she any more deprived by participating in the grace giving that she's participating in? Functionally, not at all. And so uh, you see it here, deficiency giving. Now, what might be deficiency giving today? What might we, I mean, if, if we don't have the needs, right? And God knows we need these things. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Okay? That's in that passage where it talks about seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. God knows you need these things. The Gentiles eagerly seek these things. But God knows we need these things. He provides for us. We want to have put spiritual things first and trust in God to handle the temporal provision. We seek those things second. Now, uh, if we have food and we have covering with these things, we should be content. Now, what if we don't have food and covering? What if we are deficient that we have some food but not as much as we truly need? Or some clothing but not as much as we truly need? If we are deficient, can we still give? Should we still give? And I think each believer comes in their own convictions on that. They're not prohibited from giving. They can give. And it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, application on that. I think sometimes we have wants that we call needs. And they're not truly needs. And then when we reevaluate, you say, you know what? That's not a necessity. That's just an extra. All right? That's just an extra. So that's the deficiency giving. Never commanded. Totality giving. I almost said totality giving is never commanded, but there are a couple of places. Uh, the Lord commanded it as an illustration to the rich young ruler. He gave it as an illustration. And He gave it in a context when He prophetically knew that the man wasn't going to do it. He said, go give all your possessions to the poor and follow Me. You will have treasure in heaven. Because the rich young ruler in that application thought that he had earned his eternal life, right? Totality giving is commanded once as an illustration. But in at least one passage, it is commended, not commanded, but commended. I should have used a different word there. It's too close to commanded. Well, I kind of did that on purpose. Commanded and commended. You understand the difference? If you commend something, you're, you're speaking highly of it favorably, positively. You're not ordering it. But in at least one passage, it is commended to the Lord's apostles, Luke 12:33, And so let's look at that, Luke 12:33. There's at least one passage where in a certain context, God may ask of you or you may be faced with the opportunity for totality giving. Luke 12:33, And in this case, it's with respect to the apostles and their following or their ministry. Luke 12:33 Sell your possessions and give to the charity make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and uh, it's a common and, and very possible translation that when it says sell your possessions What's implied there is all your possessions. Give to charity. Make for yourselves money belts which you do not wear out. The idea that this is totality giving. That when you pursue the ministry, those who uh, proclaim the gospel are to make their living, their livelihood by the gospel. 
that uh, God may call you as the apostles were called into an itinerant life of total dependence upon him. See, I think about Dan and Pat Hill just selling everything they own, liquidating it all and going off to Africa. All right. In a totality giving type illustration. And, uh, of course, in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18, we were there not too long ago. I forget how many episodes ago, but the rich young ruler who had felt that he had produced the human righteousness, uh, he had kept the law, he'd, he uh, was in his mind blameless. And uh, as far as he was concerned, is there any, you know, any finishing touches, <laughs> any icing on the cake to, to guarantee that I'm good with God and I'm going, I made it to glory? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. You're almost there, okay? Now, in truth, was he almost there? No, no one is. But for the sake of argument, if you can work your way to heaven, fine. All right, here's the one thing you got left to do. And um, obviously the Lord knew that was something he was never going to do or couldn't do. The point is none of us measures up, okay? Totality giving. Does God expect me to give everything to follow him? Would there ever be a time that he might do that? Would there ever be a time that he might burn my house to the ground and leave me with nothing but the clothes on my back? Okay. We had that last week, didn't we, in our, in our church family? What does God ask of us? And what then becomes the work assignment moving forward? Not just for, for me, but my family, my church family, all of us. This is a test for, for the whole flock. If, in fact... He does ask you to participate in a totality giving. He may not. He doesn't test us beyond that which we're able to bear. And so if, uh, if in fact, we couldn't bear that, he may not ask us to do that. But as we grow, he may bring us to that point and say, all right, now, where's your faith? Is it in your possessions or is it, or is it in the Lord? What if I take everything away? Job, yeah, another example. Or the Lord. Nowhere to lay his head. Now, livelihood giving, livelihood giving, it, it almost seems redundant, like, well, if it's all she has, then it, it's also her livelihood. But that's, that's not entirely true. There is a difference between all that you have and your livelihood, your ability to make more, right? In fact, I had kind of a, I shouldn't tell this, but my son's not here right now, so I'll tell it. The, um, when I was a young man uh, and, and, and a fool, I, uh, my view was that money was there to be spent. I'm talking about the first year or so while I was in the army, uh, because money was just fun and, and you lived in the barracks. So it's not like you had to pay rent and you had uniforms to wear. You didn't have to buy clothes and the, the mess hall gave you three meals a day. What was money for? And so if you made, whatever you made could be spent the next day and there will be another paycheck coming, you know, another one's coming, another one's coming. And so, and like I say, don't, I'm not recommending this at all. I'm lamenting this was a poor attitude, but you could just blow it all and oh, well, I'll make more next month. Okay. But with your livelihood, there is no more you're going to make next month because not only is this her last her last possessions, but it's all that she has to live on. It's all her livelihood. There is no, no more incomes coming in. No more skill, no more work, no more, no more uh, she can't use this money to make money kind of a thing. Okay? She can't take two lepta 
and buy materials and produce something to sell for a profit and then make more and sell more and, and so forth. Okay, This is her capital operating assets. And not only is it all that she has, but it's all her livelihood. There is no more income coming in. So we have livelihood giving, which is slightly different than totality giving. Livelihood giving refuses to place temporal expenditures ahead of spiritual expenditures. Spiritual expenditures are the first priority, followed by the temporal expenditures. Livelihood giving refuses to place temporal expenditures ahead of spiritual expenditures. Put the first things first. Spiritual expenditures are first priority, followed by temporal expenditures. And this is really the difference between livelihood giving and surplus giving. Livelihood giving and surplus giving. Okay, I'm going to get through D, E, F, and G. Am I going to do it? Maybe. All right. So, what is our livelihood? We do the same thing. Bios is the word in Greek. Bios life is our life. It's our livelihood. We do the same thing in English. We talk about what do you do for a living? Okay, what do you make for a living? What is your living? Okay, what is your livelihood? And so you say, well, uh, you know, we, we, we take home... $500 $500 a week, okay, or whatever it is. Say, so, all right, now this is my take home after taxes. <laughs> all right, that's your livelihood. That's what you have to live on. And out of that, of course, comes your housing, your food, your clothing, your utilities, your, you know, the cost of living, the things you need to live. So you have your livelihood and you have your living. Now, how do you give? How do you give? The surplus model has the livelihood, has the take home, pays the housing, the clothing, the food, the utilities, whatever. And then the surplus, whatever's left over, hmm, if anything, okay, well, out of this now, you know, 10% of that goes to the Lord. Livelihood giving looks at the livelihood, says, this is what the Lord has provided. The first fruits of this I want to give to the Lord before anything else. And then out of what's left, where do I live? What size house can I afford? What food do I eat? What clothes do I wear? You know, what, what cable package can I, can I um, upgrade to? You know, things of that nature. So it's a matter of what comes first. Livelihood giving looks at your livelihood and offers the first fruits to the Lord. And then based on what's left after that, well, I can afford this kind of house. I can afford this kind of car. I can, I can purchase this kind of food. You see what I'm saying? But surplus giving turns it around. I, I've, I've received my pay, paid my taxes, Bought the size house I think I deserve. Um, live in the, you know, the, the size car that's going to impress people. Uh, the clothes that will really get the babes all excited. You know, all this kind of stuff. My lifestyle, my vacations, all this other stuff. And then what's left over? Out of that, right. And then it's kind of also an interesting too as far as, well, what's, what are the have-tos? What are the want-tos? What are the, what's the extras? Okay. Is, 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 is cable an extra? Is, is a cell phone an extra? Is a vacation an extra? 
well, no, those are kind of necessary too. Let's put those up front, and then we'll see what's left over. Okay? And so different people do... I'm not, I'm not if issuing commands today. I'm just showing you that different people have different things that they rank as priorities and, and what comes first. And then if there's anything left over, I might go see a movie or something. Okay? I mean, what are the fun things? What is the fun money? What is the disposable income? And you'll see. All right. Anyway, that's the difference between livelihood giving and surplus giving. But keep in mind, rewardability is assigned to the attitude. We taught this in 2 Corinthians. Rewardability is assigned to the attitude. And it's according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. God loves the cheerful giver. It's the attitude. If you give it and hate yourself for giving it, then it's not what the Lord desires. But the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Not, oh, man, I hate this. Okay, fine. Okay. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver, the want to. And likewise, it's rewardable according to the attitude. The eagerness is rewardable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. An attitude makes the absolute cash value irrelevant. Two mites, two lepta. Two lepta can be more than $10,000 or all the money they were given. Why? Because it's the attitude that's rewardable. It's not the amount that's rewardable. It's the attitude that's rewardable. The attitude makes the absolute cash value irrelevant. Again, according to what he has, not what he doesn't have. That's that 2 Corinthians 8.12 passage. God doesn't, uh, God doesn't hold you accountable because if you don't have, if you're in the point of deficiency, you're not accountable. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Modern American terminology would define surplus giving as coming from discretionary income. You ever heard that phrase? Discretionary income. This is cash on hand after taxes and necessary living expenses are paid. That's your discretionary income. You paid your taxes, you paid your housing, food, clothing. Everything else is discretionary. They view that as necessity. Some uh, utilities, that's part of housing. Okay. And so that's your spending money. That's, that's for extras, that's for fun, that's for whatever, entertainment or gifts or whatever else. Modern American terminology would define livelihood giving as coming from disposable income. And it's unusual because sometimes discretionary and disposable are mixed up. And even reporters and news agencies sometimes use those terms interchangeably. That's not actually true. Disposable is your net income. That's, that's your take-home after taxes. And it's before your necessities. Disposable includes your necessities. So this is net income after taxes. That's your livelihood giving. It's your livelihood giving. And it is interesting, the, um, the attitude difference based upon the um, size, the square footage of a house what uh, what it is you think you need or, or the standard of living you think you require. When that comes first and the Lord comes second. 
And the whole idea that, oh, the Lord comes first and then my standard of living may reflect that. Am I okay with that? Say, well, hmm, I could afford a nicer neighborhood if I wasn't given so much. <laughs> well, wait a minute. What is the priority? What is the priority? And so we have, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I've got one minute left. The Lord is not condemning their surplus giving. It's still a free will offering. It's still, uh, and believers today that give out of their surplus, they're still giving in, on a grace basis, but they're giving on a grace basis, I think, with an immature view of what seek ye first the kingdom of God truly means. And yet, is it rewardable? Are they giving for the right reasons? I believe they are. Lord doesn't say it's worthless. He just says it's inferior. The livelihood giving is superior when first things come first. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this opportunity today to examine this passage. And I thank you that it's coming at the exact time that you brought us to uh, chapters 8 and 9 in Second Corinthians. I pray that we would chew on the issues related to livelihood related to surplus, that we would come to understand what your will is related to these things and how it is that you have met our need, how it is that you supply and multiply, that you are the God who supplies and multiplies. And we're going to see this. You fulfill every desire for every good work. And Father, it is no less miraculous than it was for the widow of Zarephath when you multiplied her, her flour and her oil. Father, when believers are, are seeking first the kingdom of God and you multiply and you provide, that Father, we just want to watch to see how you choose to demonstrate your faithfulness. So, Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I do lift up our family here that, uh, that recently lost uh, their home and their possessions. I thank you for them. I thank you for their faith and their testimony, for the fellowship we had yesterday and the, the um, blessings, Father. I thank you that when the Insurance adjuster came out that he was a believer and a man of a he was a uh, a very gentle man who um, had uh, compassion and understanding for a family that's still going through a lot of uh, a lot of shock and a lot of disbelief. Uh, but Father, uh, thank you for providing him, and and uh, we continue to look forward to see how you how you demonstrate your faithfulness in the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead. Father, we give you the praise, we give you the glory, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.